นโมทัสสะกุณฑูรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุณฑูรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุณฑูรหัตุสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะ
finds himself alone, for instance, experiences loneliness. Not everybody who experiences loneliness is suffering from depression. So it occurred to me that it could be useful to consider this together, see if from a Dhamma perspective we could arrive at a a useful understanding of what's going on here. Now we could speak about it from a sociological perspective, how society has been organising itself over the last, or reorganising itself and changing how it's organising itself over the last century and with the, the, the disintegration of community and, and the increasingly dysfunctional families. And could talk about it from that perspective or from a political perspective, you know, how whichever party is in power might decide to uh, divvy up the, the funds and uh, the policies that they create and how this impacts on the haves and the have-nots and uh, who really benefits from the political policies. And, or we could talk about it from a uh, psychological perspective, yeah. Loneliness, what's really going on there, why it does and can lead to so much suffering. Yeah. How for many individuals, but almost certainly these days more than ever before, the disintegration of community and the consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah. The fragmentation of the family and the consequences of that, how children grow up without a predictable, dependable, caring environment and, and how many children grow up with very significant abandonment issues and how that affects the development, the emotional development of the child. So we could be talking about it from that perspective. But it seems to me there's also another really important perspective, and that's what I would suggest pertains to what we're doing here and our interest, our shared interest in meditation and in the spiritual life, and is the fundamental view we have about suffering. Now, of course, I wouldn't suggest that just philosophizing about the suffering of loneliness is going to cure us from the pain that's involved. But I do personally believe, and I have very strong conviction, that if we bring real here and now whole body mind awareness to bear on this experience of the suffering of loneliness that there will be benefit 
to me, one of the things that strikes me about the suffering of loneliness is similar to, for instance, uh, the suffering of boredom. That a lot of people talk about the pain of boredom. A lot of young people talk about the pain of boredom. But when you stop and look at boredom, What's really going on? What 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 is the what is the real suffering with boredom? I mean, the fact is, sometimes life is not very interesting. That's just an objective reality. Sometimes there's not much happening that we find interesting. Does that mean we have to suffer? Yeah. Like getting old, and you can't do so much, and. Yeah sitting around, you can't distract yourself and it's not so interesting, it's not as interesting as being a teenager, you can get around, do all sorts of interesting things and be distracted and excited and fascinated sometimes life is not exciting and distracting and stimulating but does that equate with being bored well it's a problem or it's painful when we introduce something else, when we introduce disliking. You know? yeah. The fact that there's not much interesting going on doesn't have to be a problem. When we say that it shouldn't be this way, that's no longer describing the objective reality of nothing interesting happening. It's, that's a subjective reality. And that's something extra that we've added to the situation by saying it shouldn't be this way. And so it strikes me that with the difference between, and I do think it's the difference between the objective reality of, of aloneness, being alone, we're all going to find ourselves alone from time to time, and the subjective reality of loneliness, that we add something to the situation, saying, I don't like this. And even, actually, even disliking doesn't have to be a problem if we've got a perspective on it. I mean, there's always going to be situations in life that we dislike and can't avoid it. There's no way we could surround ourselves with likable circumstances uh, forever. You know, like the Buddha's father uh, and tried to surround his son uh, Siddhartha with likable circumstances and everything was nice, everything was lovely And but around the age of 29 his strategy fell apart, failed and Siddhartha came across you know, old age, sickness and death and oops and, you know, no matter how hard we try even if you're living in, the, in great luxury there's no way we can avoid dislikable circumstances. This evening I was sitting in my conservatory looking out on the memorial garden that we have out here and, and realised how much I actually dislike the the wind damage on the black bamboo that's out there. There's a very, well, potentially nice black bamboo growing in the garden, but the wind has really whacked it around, so it's, it's thoroughly beaten up and not particularly attractive, not particularly likable. 
But does that have to be a problem? Does being alone and the fact that we don't like being alone have to be a problem? That's a, a really useful question to ask ourselves you know, when we're considering this, uh, this perceived epidemic of loneliness. So, to ask the question, where's the real suffering in this? Is it because we're alone? Is it because we dislike being alone? Or is it, is the real epidemic, is the real issue, is the real grounds for concern that we have not received sufficient education to be able to trace back to the source? The thing that's really creating a perceived problem here is being caught up in disliking. Not even disliking itself. Mm-hmm. Now, some people really love being alone. You know, if you're on the introvert-extrovert spectrum, off to the introvert side, you really have a strong preference for being alone. And you know, it's just, leave me alone. I can't stand being with people. People are like mosquitoes. They're really intensely irritating. If you're an extrovert, it's just kind of, where's the company? Where's the fun happening? But it doesn't matter where we are on the spectrum. Sooner or later, we're going to find ourselves alone. And does that have to be a problem? Well, uh, it seems to me that if we don't pay attention to education on the heart level, then we're left very vulnerable. We we can't avoid aloneness. Just the same as we can't avoid not having anything particularly interesting happening. So what do we do about it? We look at the role our preferences play. Again, we can't avoid having preferences. Or unless you can drop into some sort of state of deep tranquility and put your preferences to one side for a while. But then when you come out of that state of tranquility, back into embodied activity again, there will be liking and disliking. But do liking and disliking have to be a problem? So I would suggest that in approaching what can be a very real source of suffering for human beings, a predicament of loneliness, not only do we need to look at how we organise ourselves socially, not only do we need to look at um, possible developmental, psychological, emotional issues, all of those things are relevant, but also let's not stop there, let's look deeper and, and be very careful about the way we approach our preferences. And this, of course, uh, those of us who uh, who choose to exercise the discipline of meditation realize how supportive uh, renunciation is. And the Buddha called Nekama Parami. It's like a... It's like a a vector 
or a force that serves the process of awakening, the process of purification, the process of realizing perfect wisdom and compassion. This, this force, the Buddha identifies, we all know many forces and sense of self-respect that comes with the commitment to integrity, uh, the sense of open-heartedness that comes with the cultivation of generosity, uh, the power that comes with the cultivation of patient endurance and loving-kindness and equanimity and honesty. We traditionally know as the ten paramita, uh, the ten forces for transformation. Uh, one of them is his nakama paramitas, renunciation. Unfortunately, most people, when they hear the word renunciation, they think it's like, oh, I've got to give up chocolate or something. Well, it might have something to do with giving up chocolate, but that's not the point. That's, you know, in our training in, in meditation, we have our meditation object, the, the paying attention to the body breathing or paying attention to the body posture or, or paying attention to the sound of silence. These different possible objects or paying attention there. We determine to stay there with it, and then the mind wanders and it goes off. And then we bring it back. That's renunciation. That saying no to the exuberance of the mind, the conditioned wandering habits, the conditioned habitual distraction. By way of experiment, we're not doing this as a moral judgment and creative fantasizing, allowing the mind to wander and dream can have its uses. But when it's completely out of control and compulsive, is that really beneficial? So out of interest and what happens, what happens when we discipline the energy of our hearts and minds? What happens when we concentrate it, when we focus it, when we collect the heart energy? Intensify. What happens when we intensify? Like with light, what happens when you intensify light? Diffuse light, well that's got a certain purpose, but focused, intensified light can have a very different function. Likewise, we discover that focused, intensified consciousness can function in a very different way. You can give access to a very different level of perception, very different level of understanding. Start to be able to see deeply beyond the way things appear to be on a superficial, diffuse level of consciousness. What's the problem here? What is the source of discontentment? Why do I always feel discontented? And we can spend a whole life wandering around in a state of diffused consciousness, wondering why am I so discontented, looking for something that's going to give me contentment. But if we concentrate, intensify consciousness, and ask that question, what's the source of discontentment, we start to see more precisely. It's this understanding of the nature of desire or more accurately, the misunderstanding of the nature of desire. This clinging to desire, always following desire, always keeps us in a state of perpetual discontentment. Wow, that's good to see. Good to see, to really see it. Not just to think it, 
I mean, it might be useful to think it as well, but to really see it with focused attention on another level brings about another dynamic, brings about letting go. So we experience for ourselves the benefit of this restraining the excessive exuberance of the mind, bringing it back, beginning again. This is renunciation. This ability to say no to the habitual wandering mind, to bring it back, to bring it back, to bring it back. And in the process to cultivate the willingness, the willingness to begin again, the willingness to acknowledge, oh, the mind was wandering again, the mind was caught up in in heedless distraction, being driven by distraction. Again, we're not just moralizing about it, we're not just saying it shouldn't be this way, Good Buddhists have concentrated mind, and that's very superficial level of understanding. But rather, with exercising the discipline of attention, we come to see for ourselves, oh, this makes a difference. Being able to say no to the compulsive, distracted mind has real benefits. you start to see being able to inhibit the reaction so that this can have a very profound bearing on something as painful as loneliness. The experience of loneliness, if we have the skill to inhibit the dislike that might arise, or with boredom, nothing interesting happening, okay, disagreeable circumstance, disliking arises. It's like if somebody burns the porridge in the morning, you can't pretend you like it, but do you have to get angry at Charlie? Anagarika Charlie tries very hard. Actually, he never burns the porridge, so this is an example. We're not getting at Charlie here, Anagarika Charlie is very diligent with making the morning porridge. But suppose he burned the porridge in the morning. Do we have to get angry? Sometimes these things happen. It's dislikable. Burnt porridge is not a disagreeable experience. Disliking arises. But do we have to allow the disliking to then move into... Ill will, resentment, aggression, aversion, hatred, which is what sometimes happens. You see the way children get bored and then they stamp their feet and tell mummy and daddy how much they hate them. Well, for children, that's tolerable, that's understandable. They're coming into, hopefully, coming into a conscious appreciation of their emotional household and, and learning to get to know themselves on that level. And if they get decent education, they'll come around to recognizing that just following emotional reactivity doesn't lead to well-being. Well, that's the theory. However, most of us probably didn't get the best education in this area. And so here we are now as adults and we have this opportunity Fortunately, with this teaching, 
to really examine what happens when I don't get my own way, when I'm left alone and I don't like being alone, when there's nothing interesting happening and I want something interesting to happen, when I have to look at wind-burnt bamboo or eat-burnt porridge. When life is disagreeable, what can we do that really helps? When life is disagreeable, what can we do that really makes a difference? From a practice perspective, we can remember to look at how we feel about our preferences. Trying to get rid of our preferences? No, that's, that's, that's not going to work. We cannot expect to never encounter disagreeable circumstances. But what we can expect, and what we can trust in, is the possibility that if we train attention to not habitually follow the movements of mind, to not habitually follow liking and disliking. Liking is a movement of mind. Disliking is a movement of mind. Those of you who've been sitting meditation long enough, consistently enough, interestedly enough, perhaps will have seen by now that you can be sitting there in a state of some relative tranquility and calm and clarity and then potentially disagreeable stimulus occurs, a sound or a memory arises. There's a choice. Actually, there's a choice. Are you going to add to that with aversion or not? It may be disagreeable. It may be a disagreeable sound, a disagreeable smell. Maybe somebody in the meditation hasn't been washing their socks or something. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Disagreeable smell. Do we have to react to that with aversion and follow it? To be able to see that, to learn to recognize that for ourselves is a really worthwhile uh, effort. It's a worthwhile effort for ourselves and I would suggest that it's also a worthwhile effort for the society that we live in. Often it's the case that I expect probably all of us have recognized that there's a, uh, generally speaking, a, a tendency for a lot of people to feel that it's somebody else's responsibility if we're suffering. Mm. We blame the teachers or blame our parents or blame the NHS or blame the politicians or blame the weather mm. to send our heart energy out and find out what's wrong with the world. Mm. We have that ability to think in that direction. But let's also remember we have the ability to turn attention around and look inwards and say, what might we be adding to this circumstance? What might we be adding to this situation that is turning something that's actually 
objectively speaking, just the way it is. Turning that into what we experience to be a problem. Mm. I thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayandamakataya sadhukaranda dhamasini